And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Stalemates in Ukraine and Gaza. Is that what we're looking at now? We'll talk about that coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. This is the Monday episode of The Bridge. And as you know, we often uh, deal with international affairs. On Mondays, especially lately, Janice Stein has been with us and she's with us again today. So first of all, welcome to another week. We're well into November now, (laughs) crowding in on winter and the end of the year. I know it's winter already in a number of places in the country. Saw some fabulous pictures of sunrise in Manitoba the other day and there was snow all over the ground um it's coming for everybody we know it all right the war on the front lines between Israel and Hamas is brutal we know that it's violent thousands are dying just how many are dying well you know we don't know that for sure because Well, no one knows who to believe anymore. One thing is for sure, though. We know who's winning. Misinformation is winning. We'll deal with that second today. But first off, we want to talk about some some truly stunning remarks in Ukraine from a man named Valery Solushny. We'll explain who he is and why he's important in a moment. Both topics on tap today with Janice Stein, Middle East commentator, conflict management analyst, and a founding director of the Monk School at the University of Toronto. And uh, Janice has been good enough to join us for the last month, ever since the October 7th uh, Hamas attacks um, on Israel. And she's been trying to put things in context for us, trying to help us understand what's going on. Sort of, I like to describe it as sort of the stories behind the stories, the stories behind the headlines. That's what Janice has been trying to help us with. And she's got a couple of really important issues to deal with today. So enough from me. Uh, Let's get at it with Dr. Janice Stein. So, Janice, I want to start uh, not on Israel-Hamas. I want to start on something we haven't started on in a month, which is the Ukraine situation. Because a rather startling uh, statement uh, from the head of the army in Ukraine, um, which has since been denied by Zelensky, or at least Zelensky saying this is not the way he feels. But basically, this document that came out, suggests we're at a stalemate. This is kind of like the First World War uh, when it was trench warfare and both sides were kind of stalemated for a couple of years. Lots of people dying, but nobody really moving in terms of um, uh, space from one side to the other. What do you make of this? Because it's it's quite startling, really. It's graphic in its uh, declaration. Peter, this is a bombshell, frankly. Um It's a bombshell because it's very rare that you get the chief of the defense staff. That's the equivalent of 
equivalent in Canada uh, to the solution uh, in Ukraine coming out and saying, we are stalemated. And I'm surprised I did not expect that. Uh, it's just an astonishing document. How does he explain the stalemate? He says, look, um, two statements stood out to me. And, and really, first thing he said is drones are more effective than artillery at defeating weapons. Now, you and I could probably talk about that one for an hour, yeah. uh, but off-the-shelf drones. So this tells you that the balance between very expensive weaponry um, and very cheap equipment is shifting, and that the advantage is shifting even in defense to very cheap equipment. That has just enormous implications for the battlefield of the future. And Zeluzhny is the first one to say this. Um, you know, mass, money, strategic depth, all the things that we think matters on, on the battlefield just matter less when you can use very cheap weapons to defeat um, very expensive ones. But what we have here is a situation where, where neither side is defeating the other. According to him, yeah, um, yeah, which makes me wonder, like, why would he say this? Why would he say this publicly? Was it was it a kind of a pressure tactic on uh, on say the Americans or NATO to uh, to move more equipment their way, more money their way? Uh, was it a move to uh, pressure uh, Zelensky to say, you know what, we are at a stalemate situation. It's time for some form of negotiations to go on uh, with the Russians. I mean, you could kind of understand either one, one of those two. Um, do you think that's what's behind this? It, it could be, it seems to me, either one of two, and we really don't know. The obvious one, which you can read in the long document that he put out, which, again, is astonishing. Nobody does this during the war, frankly, uh, is we need to change our strategy. That's really, uh, that's explicit in the document. What we're doing now, uh, we're not only not going to win, Peter, there is an intimation we're going to lose. And why is that if we keep doing what we're doing? Why is that? Because he said his big error was underestimating how many casualties the Russians would take. And if this is a competition in dead and wounded, it's clear the Russians win. They have three times as large a population as does Ukraine, and they can just take more. And he took responsibility. Uh, again, astonishing. Uh, when he said, this is the mistake that I made. I underestimated the Russian capacity to absorb casualties. So at the obvious level, this is change strategy. Because if we don't change our strategy, um, we really are in jeopardy here. And I think it also fits with huge concern in Ukraine right now. We just had a journalist here from the Kiev Independent um, who wanted to talk about one thing, the House <laughs> in Washington and what those Republican votes uh, are going to mean. And did we think they would really hold up military assistance to Ukraine? So 
it, it's entirely possible that this was orchestrated to put pressure on Washington, uh, who's preoccupied with the war in the Middle East, a hardcore Republican opposition to military assistance to Ukraine. You saw them split apart those two issues. Um, the, the Ukrainians are really, really worried about this. Zelensky says he doesn't agree uh, with what's written here. Uh, well, <laughs> exactly. Of course he can't, but at the same time, he lets the guy keep his job. So that's what I don't it's, understand. Uh, yeah, well, uh, he, 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 of course he has to say he didn't agree. Uh, he lets the guy keep his job, but he fired the guy's best friend who's in his office, who's head of special operations. That's a warning shot, right? I need you, but you did this once. You never do it again or you're next. But what does that tell me, Peter? There's infighting now. Um, as, frankly, the stalemate, you know, the stalemate that we're talking about was obvious to you. It was obvious to me. It was obvious to every military expert in this is not news. What's news is that he made this public. Uh, and what that tell, what, what we're seeing now is that there is infighting inside this, at the very senior levels between Zelensky and his generals about the way forward here. And that's got to be worrying in a, in a small country like Ukraine. And it must be extremely worrying for those who are at the front line. Uh, you know, well, who are doing the killing and the dying uh, every day. What, what is it that the document says that in, in four or five months of the counteroffensive, they've moved 17 kilometers on the yeah. front line? And with thousands of dead, with thousands of dead. So um, I'm sure he's in part reflecting that frustration. Very interesting, again, vivid description. Uh, he said uh, what motivated him to write this was a trip to the front lines uh, in Advika where he saw it up close. I'm sure he heard this frustration from men at the front uh, who have just taken incalculable numbers of casualties not to really move forward in any meaningful way. So he ends on a note, we need breakthrough technologies. Uh, that's what he's really saying. Well, breakthrough technologies don't come along every day, frankly. Um, and the breakthrough technology, and he was saying this too, which really, really interesting to everybody who's interested in military strategy. You know, the breakthrough technologies are not coming in the air or the latest tank or even the vaunted attackums. Uh, that Ukraine pressed so hard for. They're coming in electronic jamming. They're coming in drone technology. Um, they're coming at this interface between civilians who are inventing this stuff and militaries who are adapting the technologies in real time. Now, Ukraine is actually very good at that, much better than the Russian army. So I think this was really a push um, to get Zelensky to change, to move into change strategies. 
What, uh, just before we leave uh, the Ukraine story, have you heard anything through your, you know, constant conversations with different people in different parts of the world, your recent trip to the U.S., have you heard anything of a serious nature that would suggest there are, you know, negotiations at any level going on uh, to end this? No, on the contrary. What I did hear, Peter, and this is not substantiated <laughs> in any meaningful sense, but I did hear a CIA, a rumored CIA estimate that Russia has taken 300,000 dead and wounded, which is far higher what is than the number that is in the open press. So if that estimate is even roughly correct, uh, you would expect, once this document comes out, you would expect some sort of back-channel signal from Putin. Is this the time now to start negotiating? Um, so we may be in front of that kind of initiative, frankly. Can you see any level at which Putin could uh, could agree to negotiate? I mean, what's the what's the exit strategy well, for Putin at this point? You know, that's going to connect in a way to the story we're going to talk about. Uh, but if there are two people in the world right now, Peter. <laughs> that have an all-in bet on Donald Trump. Uh, one of them is Vladimir Putin, and the other is Bibi Netanyahu. Both of them were a year away from the election. And both of them, I would think, would make a big bet and double down uh, that Trump wins that election next November. I think we have to wait that out, certainly where Putin's concerned. I think Bibi has much less time than Putin does. Wow. It's it's really quite something, uh, the Ukraine story, because it's one that we didn't think was going to last a week when it started in February of yeah. 22. And here we are ending 23 and... Still going on. Still going and, on. And let me just say this, Peter. Uh, I, don't, I think it will go on through the winter and the spring. Um, there's no indication from Zelensky's people. Um, you know, we have something in Canada called the Halifax Security Forum that is just in, that's coming up um, in 10 days. And so we're busy with conversations while people are going to come. And everything we're hearing from the people around Zelensky, there is absolutely no intention to give up. So I would assume that we will go well into the spring and summer of 2024. It will converge around the U.S. election. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the Halifax conference because when it started, I don't know how many years ago now, Peter McKay was, what, the defense minister, and he was, he pushed 16 for 16 years ago. 16 years ago. He pushed for the idea as a member from Atlantic Canada of the Harper uh, government. And, you know, there was this little conference, but it grew in stature in terms of who was attending it, in terms of different governments from around the world at pretty senior levels. Um, and it, it's taken on a significance, uh, you, know, in, in, you know, in Canada, we like, to, we like to think everything we do is like really important on a global scale. Actually, this one is 
uh, it really does have a significance, right? Well, you know, I have to say, uh, I am conflicted here. I chair the board uh, <laughs> of that forum, so full disclosure. But it is, I think, one of the three or four most important in the world right now. We have Halifax, and we get a huge U.S. delegation always, which is very interesting. Senators and Kong, you know, House members. There's Halifax, there's Munich, there's Shangri-La, which is the Asian one. So it really is on the map. And we are getting a very, very large delegation from Ukraine this year and picking up no noise whatsoever um, that they that they either that they there are any back channel negotiations or that they see this ending anytime soon. Okay, we're going to take a a quick break and then we're going to come back and uh, do a little discussion on the situation with uh, Israel and Hamas. Uh, That's right after this. Welcome back. You're listening uh, to The Bridge right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Glad to have you with us. Janice Stein is our guest, as she has been uh, on Mondays recently. As we've talked, um, well, we just talked Ukraine. We're going to talk Israel and Hamas now. Um, Janice, I, you know, I've, I've kind of asked you this before. Uh, over the years, really, when it gets around to the Middle East and especially uh, Israel and the Palestinians, the question being, who do you believe, right? And you say, Peter, come on, you know, it's like anything else. It's complicated, but you got to decide who you're going to listen to. You're going to check the facts, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how you'll determine how you personally uh, will make decisions about who to believe on the different claims and counterclaims. Um Yes, that is the case, and that is what we should do. But we live in a world now that's so farly, far different than anything we've experienced before. Uh, there was another report just this week talking about the degree of misinformation surrounding this story, Israel Hamas, uh, is greater than at any time on any subject ever before. Uh, and with that, trying to determine who to believe or what to believe uh, is extremely hard, but that's where we are. Talk to me about misinformation and this story. You know, for sure, that is where we are. And and who's and actually, what we're seeing, Peter, is information war. It's part of the strategy. Uh, so at the same time as you're fighting on the battlefield, you invest resources in uh, information strategy too. So in this case, Russia and Iran got it early. Uh, that may be because they had a little warning this was going to happen, uh, whereas that was not true in the case of Israel. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of messages. You know, one that really stuck in my mind, and I can tell you so many stories here, but one that really stuck in my mind, you probably saw the video. It went viral of the riot in Dagestan in the airport when a plane landed. Um allegedly with refugees from Tel Aviv. Um, Well, uh, people have done the research now, hundreds of thousands of messages warning of a massive influx of refugees uh, in the day or two before on Telegram. Uh, 
repeated and repeated and repeated and escalated that day um, to the extent where the airport was mobbed. Um, the people actually never disembarked from the plane. Uh, the plane landed and then was rerouted. But this was an, an entirely fabricated story um, that got, some people estimate, over a million messages um, on a social media app uh, in the 48 to 72 hours before that incident happened. So look how powerful this is. This is the first Middle Eastern war that is being fought on social media, um, as well as uh, on the ground in the air and at sea, and it's making a huge difference. So it's Iran, it's Russia, it's Hamas itself. Um, you know, part of the problem is if social media is cut way back on content moderation, as we know, uh, certainly whatever you want me to call it, X or the former Twitter, um, no longer moderates content. So it just becomes a venue where really well-crafted messages, and what do we mean by that? Highly emotional messages are the ones that get retweeted and retweeted and retweeted and just change the landscape. And as you know, the print and broadcast media are behind they're behind. Um, so it's an entirely different world. Now, let me talk about one other thing, um, which we also saw, which is the cutoff of cell phone and Wi-Fi communication in Gaza. It's happened three times since Israel went in on the ground. Well, why would that happen? Well, I have no evidence but little doubt that it was Israel <laughs> that did that. Um, for two quite different reasons that nevertheless reinforce one another. One, you cut it all off and you make it impossible for Hamas leaders to communicate with each other, except if they have landlines in the tunnels, which they may well, but they could not see and share information about what was happening above ground. So just cut it off. The second equally important one um, by then, Israel was way behind in the information war. So what you do not want are cell phones and video coming out of an active battlefield. And in fact, very, very little got out in that first 48 hours after the ground forces went in. That's an attempt to control the information space. That's an example of how these two are working together. You have to see information now as a battle resource. That's what it is. And it's not a one-way street, right? Uh, in terms of both sides have a different, I don't know, sophistication, too strong a word, uh, on how they play information to try and impact their side's position. Yeah. You know, I would say the asymmetries are really interesting here because it tells you a lot about the war, right? Um, Hamas has good allies that will help here, very experienced in disinformation. So Iran, you know, tremendous cyber capabilities and very, very good. Uh, Hezbollah is very good at it. Russia, um, as we know, uh, is one of the best. And they were all mobilized out of the gate. Uh, that was not true for Israel. 
Um, the United States, for instance, as a government, um, doesn't engage in anything like the, the level that either Russia or Iran does. But what the Israelis had, it has control of the Palestinian Wi-Fi and cell phone networks. And that's just an enormous resource in an active battlefield. So it just shows you where the bases of power are so different, but each important. Uh, the the Western world has seen um, demonstration after demonstration uh, going on for the last few weeks. Uh, this past weekend has been no exception with huge numbers huge. in, in huge. streets of, uh, uh, you know, the major Western capitals. Um, now, obviously, there's a depth of feeling on that side, uh, on the uh, pro-Palestinian side for those demonstrations, and the, those are mostly the demonstrations we're seeing. Um, how much of that can be attributed to, uh, you know, to the the misinformation uh, movement that's out there. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to word this carefully because clearly yeah. there is a deep feeling on on, yeah. on, on that side. But we have ne- we have not seen um, to this extent these kind of demonstrations organized the way they are, uh, very uh, very well organized uh, in different parts of the world. So, so let's start, Peter, with the fact that there are approximately 9,500 dead um, in Gaza. And that's the latest number to come out. You know, we could go off on a Biden-led tangent here about how valid those numbers are. But let's just take that number uh, as real, which I think it is. Um, so that alone, I think, would be enough uh, to get... Um, maybe not only pro-Palestinian demonstrators, but even people who are just outraged by the civil by the level of civilian death in this conflict into the streets. But there's no doubt, and again, we've been tracking it, that we are seeing repurposed pictures from, for example, the conflict in Syria. Uh, and how do we know this is happening? Because um, there's a picture of a child badly, badly burned in the Syrian civil war. Same child showing up now, except that child is located uh, with Gaza in the background. So there is an added element here of really effective social media strategy that is highly organized and demonstrations themselves Um come together much more quickly than they did 20 years ago because everybody has a cell phone and you SMS and you text. And it is, we saw that in, you know, we actually first saw that really happen in the Arab world in the Arab spring in 2011, where text messaging was so effective in getting people out into the streets. And I think we're seeing that all across the world now as people come out into the streets and these demonstrations have an effect. You were probably watching the week, this weekend the public opinion polling on swing states in the United States. Well, there is a big drop in Biden's popular support in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, where there are large numbers of Arab, you know, of Arab American voters. Frankly, now the election's a year off, and campaigns matter, and it is way too early. 
But these media uh, are very, very effective mobilizers. There's no question about it. I can't ever imagine a conflict in the future, Peter, that doesn't allocate resources planning strategy to what I'm calling the information war right at the outset. All right. I have one other um, topic that's related uh, to the uh, situation in the Middle East, and that is, uh, you, you know, you've mentioned Biden's situation, but overall for, for the Americans, they have an enormous task force uh, in wow. the eastern end of the Mediterranean, among other areas uh, in the Middle East. But they've got a couple of aircraft carriers. I saw a picture on over the weekend of the kind of the lineup of the two aircraft carriers and all the associated yep. other ships, destroyers, and uh, and supply ships that were uh, following along. Now, they're there supposedly to as a deterrence, right? Um, a deterrence for Hezbollah not to get involved, for Iran not to get involved in a direct way and direct action, um, and and uh, Syria, Lebanon, you name it. Now, what would it take for the Americans to actually go beyond a deterrence? You've got this huge force there. Um, yeah. What if they were to, what would have to happen for them to take action of some sort? I'm going to, I think I'm going to surprise you with my answer here, Peter. And you're right. It is mammoth. And there are 2,000 deployable U.S. forces that could literally deploy uh, in an instant. I think only the United States would only deploy under one condition. If Iran directly got involved in any way in this. I think if Hezbollah did, it would not. Uh, this is, there is one audience for this deployment. It's Iran. Uh, and that's about all. Um, very interesting. Um, very, really interesting what happened this week uh, because Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah, came out um, with a very measured speech that actually infuriated Palestinians and the Saudis came out slinging this morning, you know, calling them functionally cowards uh, that they were sitting on the sidelines. But why is that? Because those missiles, those Hezbollah missiles are Iranian provided. There is no question about that one. But they have but they have very specific terms. They are there as the forward deployment to prevent Israel from ever attacking Iran. That's what they're there for. And the message must have gone, this is not one of these situations. And so Nasrallah says this is entirely Palestinian, the, the Hamas action, right? It's not us, it's not Iran. This is entirely Hamas generated, which was really a message. We are not going to use this scarce resource, these forward deployed missiles. You have to see them as forward deployed by Iran to deter Israel. Well, the United States did exactly the same thing. It forward deployed to deter Iran. So there is a, a tacit conversation going on. Between, people don't think about it like that. But there is a tacit conversation going on between the United States and Iran. They actually are communicating quite well here. That's fascinating. 
because as you say, I mean, you'd have to be pretty naive to think that Iran isn't in, in this up to their neck uh, right. from behind the scenes right now in terms of right. its support for Hezbollah and its, uh, you know, its, uh, it, 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 its support for Hamas. Um, they're very involved. But if they are at a level dealing with the U.S. on this, that could lead to a lot of places. Uh, yeah, could make the situation better if if one believes that anything that the current Iranian regime uh, would lead towards that. Well, I think there's no question here that they have each communicated with the other. Um, there are lines of restraint here, and we're only going to cross them if you cross them. And that's this quiet conversation that's going on. Now, uh, you know, where has the United States also sent anti-ballistic missile systems in the last 48 hours? I think there's some in Iraq because there are U.S. bases in Iraq. Uh, there are some in Saudi Arabia. So they are ta- they are doubling down on the insurance, Peter, um, to say any attack on any U.S basis will prompt a response or any direct involvement by Iran in this fight will prompt a response. But in other words, we're going to leave this to Israel and Hamas. If you look at the last month since October 7th, um, are we at a more critical point today than we were at any point in the last month? Yeah. Uh, given what you just outlined there? Yeah. Um, We're at a more critical point, Peter, because uh, after a month, I see still see no path to victory um, for Israel in this one. Um, You see escalating pressure. Um, The first week of the ground offensive, and they're talking about months, and I do not believe they have months. I think they have weeks, frankly, that's all. Uh, but despite the speed with which they were able to move their army in and circle Gaza City and cut, virtually cut the north off from the south, they have not degraded Hamas's military capability. Rockets are still being fired by Hamas into Israel, right? So if the goal is never mind removing or destroying Hamas, which frankly, um, to me, is rhetoric uh, rather than a, a real military objective. But if the objective is to degrade Hamas's military capability, that's still in front of them. And that is going to cause casualties. So the demonstrations you saw this weekend in the streets, I think, will be as nothing compared to what's coming. And as we've as we've witnessed in other recent conflicts in the last twenty years, uh, you can defeat your opposition on the battlefield. Doesn't mean you can defeat the ideology that they represent. No, and that's no classic with Hamas. No, and you know uh, I'm to get ready for the Halifax Forum. I had to write something, <laughs> um, and. The bottom line, Peter, there was a great military strategist that Brian and I must have each read multiple times. He's famous, called Clausewitz. He wrote 150 years ago. 
And he said one really astute thing, war is politics by other means. It doesn't matter sometimes how good your battlefield strategy is if you don't have clearly defined political objectives and understand how you're going to achieve them, you can win the battle and lose the war. Um, that's a problem in the Russia-Ukraine war. It's a problem in the Israel-Hamas war, frankly. Well, on that uh, on that note, we'll end the conversation for this week with with no guarantee other than the fact that we're going to have more to talk about a week from now, uh, and we'll see how that unfolds. Um, Janice, thanks again for your time. Uh, we always well, uh, Peter. We always feel better informed after talking to you. Thanks so much. So true, right? We always feel better informed, um, and and prepared to discuss and debate. Uh, the issues after listening to uh, Dr. Stein. Imagine sitting in her class over the years. A lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that graduated from the Monk School, the University of Toronto. And, I, you know, I, I confess I'm somewhat biased here because I'm a distinguished fellow at the Monk School. I'm not quite sure what that means, really. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I do have a relationship with the Monk School. But students who've been through the monk school process are dotted around the world in governments and private companies and um, other universities analyzing foreign affairs. And, uh, uh, you know, we can proudly state that they got their, uh, some of the basics of their education here in Canada. Okay, I have an end bit for you um, before we leave. Because I'm trying, as you know, uh, to at least once a week do something as it relates to climate change. Now, I don't sit here and profess to know the solutions. And occasionally I'll interview people who, who might have some ideas on that front. But what I like to do at least once a week is point to something that's happening somewhere in the world that shows you that, in fact, this is real. Something's happening to the climate. And it's caused, there's causation as a result of it. So here's the latest example, and I can give you a little bit of a little bit of personal background to this. When I was at two, so I don't really remember it, but when I was two, I traveled through the Suez Canal uh, on our way from Britain to what was then Malaya, and then four years later or so. I traveled back. So on that journey, I do remember going through the Suez Canal when I was like six years old. And, um, you know, how amazing it was, what it meant in terms of world trade, all of that. And the big ships that sailed through the canal. Well, we all grew up knowing that there were, there were canals all over the world. I traveled on the Rideau Canal. But talking about big, world-dominating uh, canals, there are two, right, that we tend to think of. The Suez Canal and the Panama Canal. Well, this story is about the Panama Canal. It was um, in the New York Times just the other day. And the headline is, Drought Saps the Panama Canal disrupting global trade. Drought, right? So get ready for the second shoe to drop on that headline. But let me give you the background. Let me read you a little bit from this Peter Eva story. 
in uh, in the New York Times, and you can find it with that headline, or just Google Panama Canal News, New York Times. Here's the way the story goes, the, the beginning of it. For over a century, the Panama Canal has provided a convenient way for ships to move between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, helping to speed up international trade. But a drought has left the canal without enough water, which is used to raise and lower ships, forcing officials to slash the number of vessels they allow through. That's created expensive headaches for shipping companies and raised difficult questions about water use in Panama. The passage of one ship is estimated to consume as much water as half a million Panamanians use in one day. That's a lot of water. The problems of the Panama Canal, an engineering marvel that opened in 1914, so just over 100 years ago, and handles an estimated 5% of seaborne trade, is the latest example of how crucial parts of global supply chains can suddenly seize up. In 2021, remember this one? One of the largest container ships ever built got stuck for days in the Suez Canal, choking off trade. And the huge demand for goods like surgical masks, home appliances, and garden equipment during the pandemic strained supply chains to their breaking point. You know, on that Suez Canal issue, ships were having to go around the bottom end of um, the African continent to get to their um, trade markets in uh, the Far East. In Panama, a lack of water has hampered canal operations in recent years, and some shipping experts say vessels may soon have to avoid the canal altogether if the problem gets worse. Fewer passages could deprive Panama's government of tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue, push up the cost of shipping, and increase greenhouse gas emissions when ships travel longer routes. Though Panama has an equatorial climate and makes it one of the wettest countries, rainfall there has been 30% below average this year, causing water levels to plunge in the lakes and that feed the canal and its mighty locks. The immediate cause of the El Nino climate phenomenon, which initially causes hotter and drier weather in Panama, but scientists believe that climate change, climate change, may be prolonging dry spells and raising temperatures in the region. So here's the last fact. This is interesting. Well, it's all interesting. Um, at its normal operation, as many as 38 ships a day move through the canal, which was built by the U.S. and remained under its control until 2000. The Canal Authority in July cut the average to 32 vessels from 38. And this week announced new limits that are likely to lead to fewer than 30 passages a day. Further reductions could come if water levels remain low. The Canal Authority is also limiting how far a ship hull can go below the water, known as its draft, which significantly reduces the weight it can carry. So you see the implications of that? I mean, the story goes on, and I invite you to find it uh, and read it, because it's quite fascinating. And the impact something like that has on world trade, on world prices, all of it. You know, when ships have to start, you know, paying extra to get in the queue or making the decision in the case of the Panama Canal to go around the bottom tip of uh, South America, um, that adds time, cost, and how does its impact on the climate? 
So there's a number of angles in that story that definitely fit into our climate change story of the week. All right. That's going to wrap it up. Tomorrow, um, I've got Sam Nutt coming back again. Samantha Nutt from War Child Canada. And we're going to pick up on that point we, we closed out with Janice about, because Sam has, goes to a lot of these countries where there are a lot of difficulties going on and children are the main sufferers from it. But that last point about you can lose the war but win the battle, that's what Sam is likely to suggest in our conversation tomorrow, is is the growing case in a number of these instances around the world that they're no longer trying to win the battle on the battlefield because they're winning the war in the minds of people. Right? So we'll have that discussion uh, tomorrow. I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, Wednesday is uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce will be by. Thursday is your turn. So if you have some thoughts on any topic, please send them along. The Bansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. And please, please include your name and where you're writing from. Uh, that's Thursday along with the Random Ranter. Friday is Good Talk with Chantel Hebert and Bruce Anderson. And don't forget, I forgot to mention this on last Friday. But Saturday morning now, you can get my newsletter, which is kind of a, it's not a review of the week. It's a review of some of the pieces that I saw during the week that don't get normal attention, which I think help help us in our uh, thought processes on any number of different issues. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I have fun putting it together. You can get it at nationalnewswatch.com. You go to National News Watch, which is a news aggregator specializes especially in political stories and Ottawa stories. Um, first of all, you get the, the advantage of belonging to National News Watch. Costs nothing, you know, just log on. But you'll see at the bottom of the page when you go to nationalnewswatch.com, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Push a button, costs nothing. You just have to fill out your uh, name and email address. Uh, and, you know, please do. We uh, we love new subscribers. We just started a couple of weeks ago. We've already got thousands, and we're we're, we're quite excited about uh, putting this little newsletter together. It will go into your inbox every Saturday morning by seven a.m. The idea seven a.m. Eastern. The idea there is you have something to you know look at on the weekend, something to read. You don't have to read it all. Go to the ones that uh, articles that uh, interest you, but and it's not long, you know, six or seven pieces I'll be directing you to, suggesting this is a good read. I found it a good read. You might too. Um, so try that out. It's called The Buzz. You know, we have The Bridge and we have The Buzz. So join us if you can. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.